0: This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go, 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 go. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations
1: this master brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by hopsteiner a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality sustainability and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop related tools you need to craft your next great beer for more information visit hopsteiner.com
2: I had a wonderful time, (laughs) wonderful time. We get together every now and then, Linda and Mark, Gordon and I. We look at each other and we just laugh. We had the world by the tail. The world didn't know it yet, but we did. And it was so much fun, I tell you, it was magic. It was like cutting butter with a warm knife, you know. The beer industry was ready for a revolution.
0: This week on the show, the legendary Fritz Maytag. Any beer history book worth its salt has a chapter about Fritz, and every brewer in America knows the old spaghetti factory story, how Fritz came to purchase Anchor Brewing Company. You can find plenty of interviews with Fritz Maytag on YouTube, but this one is different. We dive deep into the technical challenges Fritz endured, the perseverance, brotherhood, and pursuit of continuous improvement that have shaped this industry, and so much more. You're going to want to pour yourself in Anchor steam and settle into this one. In 1965, Anchor was bankrupt. You made a trip to the brewery just days before it was set to close its doors, at which point you fell in love with the place and decided to purchase it. What exactly was it that you became enamored
3: with?
4: Well, I always remember
2: hanging on the wall... A giant copper circular tube, and at that time, I had no idea what it was i now I soon realized of course it was in a temperating coil for a round fermenter um, hanging on the wall, and
4: this very funny little outfit with uh,
2: troubles on on all sides and I was recently out of graduate school, I did not have a full-time job. I was starting a project with some friends that ended up in Chile, uh, but I was looking for things to do, and I loved the idea of the brewery, and I could see that it was desperately in need of somebody to put some money in and just help them, up, help them over the, the hump as it was, and I had no idea that I would end up owning it all or running it. I just thought I would be an angel and step in and and it was a, just an amusing uh, thought to get involved. Of course there you know the idea of a little brewery was just unheard of and here I was uh with an opportunity to get in and I so I bought controlling interest from the two major owners who were desperately trying to avoid a bankruptcy on their records, and I paid almost nothing for it. And I just sort of thought I would just be uh, an angel that would give them a little financial help and maybe some, a few business ideas and um, that it would be interesting. And um, that was all at first.
3: Was that the
0: first time you'd ever set foot inside a brewery? Oh, yeah. Was Anchor Steam the only beer in production when you bought the brewery, or were they selling other
2: brands? No, no, it was Anchor Steam. They made a dark, they, what they called a dark beer. They just added caramel syrup uh, the, way, the way all the American breweries were doing to make their dark beer.
0: Anchor will always be remembered as one of the most innovative modern American breweries. You, pr- you produced beer styles that were unheard of at the time. Wheat beer, porter, barley wine. Liberty Ale, which was dry hopped, has been credited as the start of the hoppy beer revolution. Why did you decide to brew Liberty Ale? It was way hoppier than anything else at the time.
2: I thought eventually we would benefit from having more than one product. And the first thing we did was anchor porter. And um, But Ale was, I had his, read the history of brewing, especially in England, in English started collecting books on brewing in English and was very aware of the tradition of ale in England over the centuries different styles but i think the really the primary inspiration was a lunch i had with a local hop broker
4: len richardson who was one of the several
2: people in my early days who earned my my um, gratitude by treating us with respect he sold us hops he had been a hop grower in Sonoma way back but he was uh, he sold it, sold me the hops we were using and he took me to lunch and he served me
4: a bottle of Valentine's.
2: It was basically a Christmas ale. It didn't say that on it, but it was brewed uh, under contract to the Finn and Feather Club in Chicago. I guess it was a place where you went to hunt. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it was, a hunting club where they I think they did the way they do in England where they would drive the pheasants or the birds to, to you. Anyway, they uh, had contracted for this uh, beer, that, this ale that would be given out to the members, I guess, at Christmas time. And Len wanted me to see what a hoppy, a really hoppy beer or ale was like. and. Told me that they had exper. Somebody at Valentine's had been experimenting with hop extract, and that this ale had been made with a hop extract. And of course, I knew about dry hopping because I'd read
4: my history of brewing, and
2: I was just bowled over. It was the most interesting beer I'd ever had in my life, Uh, and. It was old, it was, gosh, I don't know, 10, 20 years old, but Len as a hop enthusiast had saved samples of it. And I think that was the primary inspiration. We brewed in uh, what we called Liberty Ale in the uh, spring of 75. And uh, we called it Liberty Ale because we were looking for some justification and, and inspiration and we could see that the bicentennial in 76 was coming, and I thought, we'll get a jump on all the people who will do some sort of bicentennial brews. And um, so we, we brewed it on April 18th. Uh, you know, April 8, 1875, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year and the midnight ride of Paul Revere. So we brewed an ale, and I used sugar, because I knew that the English used sugar in their, in their modern ales. And I was terribly disappointed with the product. We only had a few hundred cases. Mark Carpenter, who was my right hand at that point in or one of my right hands in production, uh, when he when I told him I didn't want to sell it, he said, "Who are you to prevent the world from sampling our experiment?" And <laughs> of course, economically, I was happy to justify selling it because it was it was a shame not to waste it. Was so we bottled it and sold it. But I was very disappointed and kind of almost ashamed of it, really. And that was why we went to England in the fall of 75 to study the brewing. We came home, and the first thing we did was the barley wine. It was a—and then that fall, we then did our first Christmas ale, which, again, was an all-malt, highly hopped—we used Cascades. Um, And um,
4: so that was our first real traditional ale was the— Christmas
3: ale, seventy-five. How did you go about formulating
0: recipes for for beers like the barley wine and Liberty Ale and Anchor Porter? Did you, you know, with little precedent, and I assume you didn't have a pilot system or anything like that, right?
2: Never believed in pilot. I, the Lucky Lager Brewery in San Francisco, at one point uh, in the early seventies, I think it was, they put in a p- little pilot brewery, and they went bankrupt right after that. And I always. <laughs> I took that as a sign. I said, we don't, we sell our experiments. Uh, When we're going to brew something, we brew it and we sell it. And I guess the Liberty Ale was the (laughs) the first example of that. Uh, I don't think we ever sold anything that was bad, but we certainly sold some things that were somewhat experimental. Uh, I had read about brewing. I knew my brewing. I wore out volume one of De I had to buy another copy. I knew my english uh, brewing history. I had a quite a good collection of books on brewing, and so I was very familiar with the different ideas about what the different types of beers had been and and so we
4: we just uh, you know we just used common sense
2: we made anchor porter we just i got out my pencil and penciled out how much caramel malt and how much black malt and I remember the very first brew we ever made of black porter. I always talk about this. I, we, I was up in the mash tun and, and I cut open the sack and I dropped, started dropping the black malt down into the little two-roll mill we had, and the smell came up and I thought, oh my God, they they sent me coffee <laughs> instead of black malt. We'd never brewed with black malt, <clears throat> so it was instinct and intuition and and basic knowledge of of brewing history.
0: Today's brewers have what at times feels like unlimited resources when it comes to raw materials, but I can imagine sourcing even the most basic ingredients must have been a significant challenge for a tiny brewery in the 60s. So I want to talk about that. First, First, let's hear about malt. Uh, You just mentioned a few different types of malt um, that you were able to use, but I'd like to know how had the brewery been buying malt when you took over in 1965, and how did malt procurement evolve over the years?
2: Yeah, well, we bought all of our malt. uh, It was pale malt uh, from the local maltster, Bauer Schweitzer, which was just across town. Mind you, there were... um, some significant breweries running in that, that time. In in the city, we had Hams um, and Lucky Lager and Bergie Burgermeister. In San Jose, we had uh, Falstaff and up in Santa Rosa, one of the very last family uh, local brewers, the um, Grace Brothers. And Bauer Schweitzer was a, f- a very small family-owned,
4: privately-owned maltster. That um,
2: was willing to help us. We, we would we drove over. We drove across uh, town in in our truck with two little um, malt uh, bins that we that I had built that they would fill, and then we would wheel them up the elevator and open the little opening at the bottom, and the malt would f- flow into the from the into the mill. And so that was pretty good, and the malt was, I think, quite good. I would say. By then, I had uh, met a lot of people, of course, in the industry, and knew about um, suppliers. I think, oh dear, I'm I'm fishing for the name of the company in Wisconsin that was the really the only specialty malt or
3: maybe. What is it, Breece.
0: Oh, you were, uh, Yeah, and it might have been Shire. Shry- Was it Shire before then?
2: No, Bruce. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, this nice, nice man, and we had toured there and seen how they roasted the malt and stuff. And I'm pretty sure that's where we got the black malt and the caramel malt, both of which were pretty rare in the brewing industry. They were making they were making malt like that for uh, you know candy and cookies and bakeries and stuff. Uh, I remember once we had a brewer from Coors who came and she saw the the black malt in the Brew house. Oh, she said, "Black Pat, Black Patent Malt." I've heard about it, but I've never seen it before. <laughs> that was, you know, those malts were just not used in American brewing in those days. Caramel coloring was the was the tool of choice.
0: Well, I, I wanted to ask you that because I, I was curious, you know, what sort of options you had. I, I wondered if maybe you could only get a few different types of malt, but it sounds like you were able to get a, a pretty decent selection. Yeah,
2: we we had some good resources. Mind you, they were somewhat limited by by modern standards. Of course, it was terribly limited, but it was all we needed, I I would say. And likewise, hops. I formed some friendships pretty early on with some hop growers. uh, Henry von Eichel, who was a major uh, grower, and John Siegel. Henry von Eichel uh came out, visited the brewery and could see what we were trying to do and at one point I don't remember the year, but he said, Fritz, if I were you I would for- forward contract your malt uh for the next year or so. And talk to your grower. We just had one grower. Uh I'm I'm sorry, hops, forward contract your hops. Uh we just had one grower up in in Yakima and he was making northern brewer for us and I talked with him and he agreed to forward contract that that contract, which he later was horrified to discover he had made, uh, saved me $50,000 in a period of about a year year or so, which was at our brewing level that tells you, I mean, you know how hops do every now and then the price of hops used to just skyrocket. and. That's what happened. Uh, at one point, I sent him $10,000 just as a thank you, and he still wasn't mollified. He, and we didn't do business with him after that.
3: Wow. Uh,
2: but John Siegel was the main source of hop knowledge for me. He was on the committee that was doing research at the University of Oregon, and they would make test brews, and it was John who recommended that we try Cascade. He said, "Fritz, there's a new hop. There's very little of it, but I've been growing it for them as a part of our experimental program. and I could get you some, and I think you should try it because I think it has a nice ale quality. And that was when we used, uh, we were the first to use Cascade commercially, pretty sure that was in the um, 75 Christmas ale, might have been in in the first Liberty ale, but I'm not sure about that. Anyway, so John Siegel was a a wonderful resource for hop knowledge. And, of course, by then we had toured uh, Europe and toured toured Yakima and and knew a lot of, had a lot of resources for what, compared to today, it was limited, but we had all we needed really to do the things we wanted to do.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask about...
0: um... Sort of what other hop varieties were available back at that time. I mean, there couldn't have been but so many different ones. And and obviously. Well, they
2: were still growing hops in California. They called them uh, late clusters, I think they were called. Or were they called early clusters? No, I think it was late clusters. They were still being grown over in the um, Consumnes area. That grower, who was the last, eventually the only grower in California, he took his hop yard out. I can just see him now and his daughter and his son, and I can't remember his name, a very small guy, and his daughter and son were both quite tiny, charming, and wonderful people, just wonderful people. He took his hop yard out finally. He was making more money growing asparagus and selling it on the side of the road than he ever did growing hops, but he kept... A little tiny patch of hops, just for the sentimental value. And for for many years, we went up and helped him pick those hops, and uh, and we and had and had them dried. And we used to put them in the Christmas ale, just as a symbolic thing, to to have some California hops in the Christmas ale at a time when there were no California hops, other than this little, almost like a little hop hobby, you know, hop yard.
3: I assume you were
0: using primarily whole-leaf hops, right? I, there there were no oh, yeah. options we only for pellets or anything?
2: Never only, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was fairly, uh, that was the norm in those days. The hop extract was still, was just coming on. There was lots of experimenting going on, and you know, the carbon, the, the, I remember being terribly impressed. I think Henry von Eichel told me about the experimenting they were doing with carbon dioxide as a solvent. for hop extract, which appealed to me because we wanted everything in our beer to be absolutely pure and natural and all that. So the idea of using carbon dioxide appealed to me, but we never did that. We always used whole hops. That was a matter of principle for me, all malt and whole hops.
0: Going back to the malt, did you have any influence on the malting process, or was that all driven by the larger breweries?
2: I don't remember having... Any influence we did have uh, when we, uh, we closed to move to the new brewery in the summer of seventy nine the idea was to keep uh, bottling at the old brewery until it was dry and start brewing at the new brewery uh, and then move the bottling line over well that was a good plan as they you know they say planning is everything and plans are useless but It was a good plan because we were actually only out of beer for a few months and um, if we hadn't thought about it in that way, we would have been out for a long, long time. But um, that summer, we didn't buy any malt
4: and Bauer Schweitzer had cut us off not long, not too long before that. I went over to get malt, and uh, they said, oh, I'm, we're, we're closed. We're, the men are on strike. And I said, "You didn't, what?
2: What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, no, there's, we're closed. You can't get any malt. And I said, well, why didn't you tell us? And they said, well, all the other breweries came and bought malt and stored up. And I said, well, you didn't tell us. Oh, yeah, well, we forgot. <laughs> oh, boy. So with great pleasure, we stopped That summer
4: when we were out, we weren't brewing, we stopped buying malt from Bauer Schweitzer and we started up with uh, Great Western, who had come to me and said that they wanted my business.
2: They actually took me out to dinner and said they would love to have our business. And in those days when any supplier treated us with respect, it made a tremendous impression on me because of course we were just a joke in many ways and here they were treating me like a real brewer and I couldn't wait to start up again without calling Bauer Schweitzer. I just started brewing with, uh, well actually we started brewing with malt from Coors, that's a whole other story, but uh, Bauer Schweitzer called finally. How's everything? Oh good. And how's business? Oh good. Uh I noticed notice you're not buying any malt from us. Yeah, no, we, we're not. Thank you very much. It gave me great pleasure.
0: <laughs> you just tell them that you forgot.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to buy malt from you.
2: But the, the Coors story is a good one. Now, that was actually the summer of 79 was when uh, they...
4: Oh, dear. Let's see. What was it? It was... Um... High-performance liquid, no, it wasn't liquid chromatography.
2: It was um, another technology which I'll I'll think of. And they could suddenly detect nitrosamines in parts per billion rather than parts per million. Some American brewers had been in Germany at a convention, and some Germans had said, you know, we've been measuring beer, and we're up over 200 parts per billion nitrosamine." And uh, it's of some concern. Nitrosamine was a carcinogen. considered to be a carcinogen, yeah. carcinogen. And of course, it was very high in in bacon. It came out later that it was in whiskey, of course, because of the it's because of the Scotch whiskey, because of the drying the malt with peat um, uh, in the fires, and the the fumes of the fire was what caused the nitrosamines and direct. Uh, heating from flame through the malt during the drying. But the Americans—this is the part, one of the parts of the story that I like. I ask people, what do you suppose the American brewers did when the Germans told
4: them that? And the answer is that they went to the telephone. They called home uh,
2: because they knew that as Americans with the integrity in our system, in our business systems, they were under a tremendous obligation immediately to report this and to not keep it secret and to have it be uh, known in the companies and of course even in the public. Yeah. The Germans pretended that they didn't have any nitrosamine for a long time, they tried to keep it secret and they obfuscated and lied basically about the levels. But meanwhile, we, of course, had the only. Well, there were two other brewers that by, new, by the new Albion and Sierra Nevada were brewing, and we were all making all malt beers. And there's no question that we would have had the highest nitrosamines mm. of any beers in America. And I uh, got jumped on it and found out that there was one maltster who had no nitrosamines um, in the
3: Dakotas, red. Red bluff or something.
0: I, I take it but they course, already already had an in, indirect indirect fire kiln, I, I suppose.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and their malt was all sold out, and of course the people who were getting it were were going to be having less nitrosamine. And but my friend Otto Seidenberg, who's a, in the malt business, a very close friend of John Siegel, my hop guy, and uh, Otto. I called Otto and, and asked him, and begged, read, asked, him, begged him to see if he could intervene for me with the maltsters in the Dakotas, Red law <clears throat> or something. Anyway, he said, "But I got He said, "No, there, it's no, there's no way." But I've got an idea, Fritz. He said, "Coors uh, has their own malting, and they do indirectly fired malt, and I think I could get." them to sell you malt. So Otto arranged with Coors to send us malt. We had a rail line at the brewery, and they sent rail cars. Wow. They had to send it through the cleaning system a second time because normally they cleaned it again just at the brew house. But for us, they had to send it through again, and so they charged us a premium. And I called uh, uh, New Albion and Sierra Nevada and they came and got their malt from us, and so the only uh, microbrewers in America, instead of having the highest nitrosamine of any beers in America, we had zero. Wow, that's
0: great. That's a good story. <laughs>
2: uh, I tell you, I I just used to love to imagine some guy in Anheuser Busch saying, "Oh, let's test, let's test this stuff." Yeah, and <laughs> getting this is zero nitrosamine. That was wonderful. And then, but then we bought from Great Western after that.
3: Well, uh,
0: let's hear about where you got your yeast from in the early days.
2: Well, we used to get it from the other breweries. It didn't take me long doing research, you know, reading, doing my reading, and thinking, and with some advice from some people. There was a a wonderful man named John
4: Bolger, who had worked for Wallerstein
2: as a traveling uh, sales engineering representative around the West and. He was retired, but when I bought into the brewery, he called me and he introduced himself and said, "You guys you've got problems there. I guess you've learned that by now and I said, "Boy, have I He said, "I used to travel the the west with my microscope in the trunk of the car and and give advice to brewmasters, and I can give you some very practical, very simple advice that will help you a lot and That was the first really professional guidance uh, that i that I got. So by then I knew a great deal about what was happening and why our beer, we only brewed once a month and we would tr- we tried to keep the yeast in a milk can in the refrigerator and it would overflow and it was full of bacteria. And, and I had learned a lot by then about bacteriology and brewing bacteria. And it was clear to me that we had to use fresh yeast so I would go around to the breweries and we only brewed once a month, so I, and I would alternate. I'd go to Lucky Lager this month, and then to Berge the next month, and then to Falstaff the next month, and then to Ham's the next month, and then to up to Grace Brothers in Santa Rosa. And so I only troubled any one brewer uh, maybe twice in a whole year. And I would take my milk can with me, and they would fill it with liquid yeast, and we would start each. Month we would start out with fresh uh, yeast, so that made a it made a huge difference. Uh, we were we still had bacteria,
4: you know. It was I was deep into brewing bacteriology
2: in those days, and so I was very aware of the fact that even the yeast we were getting from the other breweries, of course, it had lactobacillus and the eucoccus. But the point is that it was the numbers were small, and so it wasn't. Um, Instant spoilage—the way it was when we were using our own. So we just used fresh. And then at one point, I got so frustrated that I, uh, another brewmaster, a retired brewmaster George Gurl, uh, told me to
4: get yeast from uh, from
2: uh, north. Uh, let's see. There was a yeast company in the East Bay that made bakers' yeast for for bakers. Ah. Said uh, he said, trust me, Fritz. You can make wonderful them tell them I sent you if necessary, have them give you the yeast before they put the starch in it. They mix it with starch to make it into a paste to sell in the stores and and make it convenient. Get yeast from
0: uh, maybe red star would that be it I'm red star s- thank
2: you How did you know
0: i I don't know it just kind of came to me
2: yeah, red star, and I used red star yeast to brew anchor steam for several years, if I remember correctly. And that was magic because there was no, uh, really no brewing bacteria in that yeast, or almost none, and um, it gave us a tremendous jump. We, we sort of had a long period of better quality based on the red star yeast rather than on our own uh, cleaning and sanitizing, which we eventually got to be very good at. But uh, in those days, we were still struggling to figure out how to clean things and how to sterilize and stuff coming up i would not give up i would not i would uh i just i just ignored all the problems and when the rain came through the roof down onto the table in the tap room uh i just ignored it and pretended that everything was okay
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
1: Support for this podcast is brought to you by Whitcomb-Salinski-McAuliffe PC serves all brewers in registering and protecting trademarks, navigating the label approval process, and assisting with OSHA inspections and safety compliance. Please go to WSMLawPC.com for more information.
0: Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers Calendar. District Carolinas is holding a social at Highland Brewing in Asheville during the South Atlantic Hops Conference March 16th. Maybe I'll see you there. District Michigan meets at the Knickerbocker and Grand Rapids March 21st. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal March 21st. District St. Louis also meets March 21st at Urban Chestnuts Grove location. Don't miss the Maintaining a Clean Brewery webinar March 28th. Several districts meet the last weekend in March. District Texas is in San Antonio, District Mid-Atlantic is at Basic City Brewing in Waynesboro, Virginia, and District Midwest is at Rheingeist in Cincinnati. It's not too early to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now, back to the show. From what I can gather, you inherited a lot of quality problems when you bought the brewery. Talk about what that firefighting process was like. What what was some of the lowest hanging fruit?
2: Well, I had the the last medieval brewery in the world. We had no refrigeration.
4: We had the typical cool San
2: Francisco weather, but no refrigeration. We had no cleaning knowledge, really, no knowledge of sanitation. We had a boiler to heat the mash, but it, uh, it the level control was broken. And so whenever we were brewing, I would have to run up and down the stairs every few minutes to make sure the boiler wasn't going to explode from running out of water and had to manually keep the level adjusted. We had um, a cool ship, which was open to the atmosphere. One morning I went in and there were pigeons in there um, above the cool ship.
4: It was galvanized, nothing wrong with that, but it was, there was
2: no way to clean it. and. We had one pump, a little uh, centrifugal pump at the base of the hop jack under the kettle we had a galvanized um, circular tank with a, a grid we would sprinkle we would spread fresh hops out on this grid and then as we emptied the the during the strike at the kettle the wort would run through the hops and through this little grid and then we pumped it with this little uh, cervical pump up to the hop And at the end of that, we would run hot water through the pump and through the pipe. That was the extent of cleaning, really. And uh, we had one fermenter, it was a stainless steel fermenter, but the welding where it was just as primitive as it could be, and it just filled with nicks and nooks and crannies. And
4: um, we cleaned it. Um, By hand, of course, and and that in itself was hardly hardly cleaning. Uh, I can remember at one point I got so insane over the sanitation in the fermenter. We went in with
2: welding torches, and we went up and down all of the welds just to sterilize the welds because they were so rough that I, I knew that there was no way we could clean them and that they were harboring a fabulous, fresh charge of bacteria for
4: every brew. Um, from a microbiological point of view, we just, I uh,
2: well, I have spent more time Looking through a microscope at uh, beer than anybody in the modern, uh, ever, probably ever in the history of brewing. Uh,
4: I had to learn from scratch, and and I was just
2: horrified and terrified and panicked. And I had a local medical lab teach me how to do a Gram stain. I learned bacteri, you know, bacteriology. I learned it all, you know, from books and and just by hand and and uh, the school of hard knocks, I guess you'd say. <laughs> and I learned to do the gram stain, and to figure out what we had, and what it was, and why, and I saw it in the in Pasteur's book, of course, in the, in
4: the illustrations. Um, I can remember looking once at um, Wirt from the cool ship before, we, after,
2: before it was pitched and i saw stuff that i don't even want you to know about there were <laughs> critters in there one of them in, in particular that i'm not sure anybody else even knows about if you if you're curious just get some fresh wort and throw it in an old jar and then and then toss it out and then do it again and pretty soon you'll have obesum bacterium proteus you know what sensen sen was the the little Spicy thing you, you used to put in your mouth, like mints, yeah, they were shaped like little pillows, and
4: obesum bacterium proteus is like big pillow bacteria, they were sort of sort of square but puffy, and they love they give a flavor an aroma of um oh dear, not cabbage um. Brussels sprouts, or something
2: anyway, I can remember that smell. Our work would be fermenting with all kinds of crazy things before it even got to the fermenter so anyway, we learned I
4: learned bacteriology we eventually we, of course, we ended up if you bear with me we, we had the certainly the
2: most modern small brewery in the world, and by certain standards. I would argue the most broader most modern brewery of any size in the world uh even though it was tiny uh, but bacteriology was a big microbiology was a big part of that, and we had um, you know we were flash pasteurizing
4: and doing millipore uh, anaerobic uh
2: analysis of our beers um when it was a very, 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 very rare thing to be doing. It was just standard practice. The only other brewery that I know of that was doing anything even like what we were doing was coolers where they were sterile filtering and uh, and, and uh, aseptically packaging. And we were flash pasture. We, we we'd started out trying to do uh, sterile filtering with a tight uh, primary filter and then a millipore, but we found that... You had to filter the beer so tightly, and the millipore was a tricky technology, and and at that point, I was dubious about filtering beer so tightly, and so we switched over to flash pasteurizing. But anyway, the only other brewery that I know of in the world that was doing anything like what we were doing was Coors. and I remember visiting there once, and I saw on a shelf in the lab...
4: I saw a dozen or two little Erlenmeyer flasks with um, uh, amber liquid in them and
2: cotton in the mouths of the flasks. And I knew instantly what it was. We'd been doing that for years. I'd gotten that idea, I think, from de Klerk, but I'm not sure. And I've often thought of it as just a perfect example. of. Of quality control at its best in the sense that it's absolutely, when you take a sample of your wort as it's going into the fermenter and you're hoping that it's sterile, right? If you've cooled it down then you've had to sterilize your cooling apparatus and all the pipes and all the valves and all the rest and so to actually get sterile wort into the fermenter is a challenge, right? And what I had read you do, which I just always did, I would guess they still do it. Uh, you take a little sample of the word into a sterile flask and put some cotton in the mouth and set it on the shelf. And You don't need to do anything more. You don't need fancy equipment. You just look at it. And if it's, it's up on the shelf and there's today's brew and yesterday's brew and the day before yesterday's. If after four or five days the word is still clear, you're aware it was sterile. Or certainly sterile for beer, you know, beer sterile. And I saw those little flasks at Coors, and I thought, yes, a Brotherhood of Brewing, they know this simple test, and um, they're trying to get sterile work into the fermenter just like we are. That was, That's right. It was nice.
0: Fritz, in preparation for this interview, I asked you to take a look back at past issues of the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. Fortunately, the digital archive available at MBAA.com goes back to just before you bought Anchor. I'd like listeners to hear about some of the articles that had the biggest impact on what you were doing at Anchor.
2: We uh, were subscribers before I came in. There were some, maybe it was uh, some old copies that people had loaned us. I don't remember, but I quickly arranged to subscribe to the. To the technical quarter, and I read it with interest. I confess, in those days, my attitude was that the American brewing industry or the worldwide brewing industry had been overly industrialized and overly uh, mechanized and overly manipulated. And I was—I wanted to brew the most traditional beer in the world, and uh, you know, hops and malt and water, and nothing else, and no tricks, no adjuncts, no additives, no know anything. And so much of what I read in the Master Brewers technical quarterly was actually amused me. I used to think they're on the wrong track, and uh, we will show them. On the other hand, I also realized that, uh, and recognized in some of the articles, some very helpful things with the, the one when I reviewed them recently that I I spotted immediately was an article in the mid 60s on iodophores and when we started aseptically packaging or bottling our beer uh, we, uh, iodophores were a big was a big part of our uh, bottle and crown uh, sterilization and it was magic and um
4: uh, I got that my first knowledge about that from the technical quarterly. There were also, there was an article about
2: uh, Whirlpool uh, hot work uh, receivers and um, I, I just loved that and I, uh, that was just, I read, when I read that, it was just when I was putting in the first really modern thing which was to go, we kept our cool ship but we... Didn't use it for cooling, we just used it as a holding tank. And as soon as it was filled with the hot wort from the kettle, uh, boom, we would go down by gravity down uh, below to the wort cooler. That was the very first piece of uh, modern brewing equipment that I put in because I realized we were just hopelessly uh, contaminated with bacteria. And I had to do anything and everything I could to to at least get a clean start and so we put in a,
4: a wort cooler and um uh, interesting I, I I talked with APV because I knew
2: from my reading maybe, maybe from the master brewers quarterly I'm not sure uh, I knew that APV had been a pioneer at the plate at heat exchangers and I called them and they were they couldn't be bothered to come and see me. So I went, uh, by then, in those days, almost all of our uh, technical, our tanks, knowledge and valves and pipes and all that stuff, we were uh, dependent on the dairy industry for for the quality that we needed. Again, the only brewery I knew who that had a similar attitude was Coors. We went to Coors and, and having... Agonized over valves and how to sterilize valves we went to Coors and they had a fabulous valve and immediately I realized that it was super easy to sterilize I said oh where do you get these uh, he said we designed and built that ourselves <laughs> <laughs> there you go of course they, they did everything on their own anyway so um
0: Hey, by the way, that Whirlpool article I sent you did you did you take a look at that? Was that was that the one you were looking for? Absolutely,
2: that's. There's no question that was the one. Great, great. That that was really fun. That
0: was
3: really fun for me.
2: Basically, he said everybody has theories about how the the ratio of the depth and the diameter and the height and the this and the that. But if anybody who's reading this is worried, just build one because they all work. (laughs) I I built one just like that. Boom! I had one of the first. Uh, That was again. We were just at the time we were. We put in our work cooling. we started with using the cool ship as a holding tank, and then we eventually uh dropped we went to, into the to the whirlpool uh hot work tank and then to the cooler and that was it worked of course immediately it was great
0: i you know i th- I'll put a link to that article in the show notes, but that was a yeah. really fun. Uh, read for me, you know, as someone who's never known life without a whirlpool in the brew house to kind oh, of really. read through the logic and sort of, you know, it's this brand newfangled, you know, yeah. contraption, you know. Uh, so that was a cool, yeah, but you cool
2: know, it's read. a good example of what works, uh, works. Uh, I mean, it, that's right. It, uh, my favorite example is the uh, aerodynamic treatment of semi tractors that 20 years ago or whenever that was, at first you saw a tractor with a with an aerodynamic top on it, and you thought, oh, for heaven's sake, well, that makes sense maybe, and then a, a month later, you'd see one out of five tractors had it, and a year later, every tractor had it, and there was no government program, no propaganda to to please save oil by putting your, They, they it paid, it worked. And everybody put one on. And the Whirlpool hot Tank just spread like wildfire through the brewing industry. Yeah. Because it worked.
3: That's right.
0: So we know that TQ was a great resource for you in the early days. Talk about your experience with Master Brewers membership.
2: And I did apply at one point to join. And they said they were very sorry, but they, I couldn't become a member because I didn't have the educational requirements. Uh, At that point, I had the most modern
4: brewery in the world, maybe,
2: depends on your point of view. We had all stainless steel, all sanitary valves and fittings, all cleaned in place, Uh, centrifuge, flash pasteurizing, aseptically bottling, and uh, there was nothing like it, John, I mean, really. Uh, so they said I could become an associate member. <laughs> I said, thanks, but no thanks. Years later, to my great delight, they honored me with some kind of an award. I forget what it was, you know, the Brewer of the Year or something like that at a very nice uh, convocation down somewhere in Southern California. And I think I mentioned this at that, at that <laughs> dinner. Everybody laughed. But it has changed totally from what I saw in those days. Obviously, as the small brewers began to proliferate, there were no end of people in brewing and knowledgeable about brewing. Highly skilled. Some of them had gone to school, sure, but many were hands-on like I was and very qualified. And uh, certainly, uh, the Master Brewer meetings, I take that back. I did go to the Master Brewer meetings. in the Bay Area. They used to meet from time to time, and I did go a few times. Um, Anyway, clearly, the master brewers just broke wide open in the, I would say, in the 80s and welcomed the small brewers into all of their membership and into their meetings and into their colloquia, and I think it has, it was indeed uh, in the early, day, mind you, there were only, a, you know, a very small number of brewers, and uh, even smaller number of brewing companies. And so it was a very closed shop, and I think everybody had a common background and a common work experience, and so it was an elite group of uh, highly specialized scientifically trained uh, food uh, processing technicians and you could understand why they didn't want some goofball you know joke brewery out in San Francisco to be a official member but that all changed it was very understandable in the 60s and 70s and it broke wide open at least out here in California It just broke down totally, and it became a a really collegial group who welcomed small brewers with open arms.
0: Anyone who's been in a business partnership knows that it's not easy. You operated Anchor with a partner until 1969, at which point you bought him out. Was that a challenging time for you?
2: Very. Yeah, he was a lovely man in many ways. A roustabout, uh, a guy who loved, there's nothing he loved better than rigging. He liked to move a big piece of equipment with a come-along and some wooden things under it. And he had his shop that was just littered with tools and projects and stuff. And he used terms like mucking out for cleaning and you can see from what i'm saying that i i quickly realized that he he and i just didn't agree at all and that i was going to have to take over the making of the beer and i did it gradually and trying not to hurt his feelings but it became obvious that i just i had to do it and so we stayed partners um it was a difficult time there's more to it than i'm telling you because some of it was just not worth saying uh, one of the nicest things anyone ever did for me was when I sat him down and said, Look, Lawrence, it's it's not working, and I would like to buy you out. And he sold me his shares at, a, mind you, a good
4: price, certainly more than they were worth, but at a reasonable price. And he sold me all of his shares. Anyone with any
2: good business sense or selfish motives would have said, "Well, I won't sell you all because you might make a big success out of this, and I'm going to keep ten percent or five percent or something." But he was a, a man of of a big man in his heart, and we we saw eye to eye in in our deep fundamental values of common sense and integrity
4: and decent respect. It's hard to explain,
2: but he wasn't manipulative, he wasn't cynical, he wasn't tricky, he was generous, and he was, I think, had come to realize it wasn't gonna work, and that the best thing to do would be to make a clean break, and he sold me all of his shares, which gave me the freedom to be in charge myself and never have to report to anyone. And it was a wonderful gift. He then went to Costa Rica and managed a farm for some people there, sort of thing he would have loved, jack of all trades, you know, all of that sort of thing, and was uh, killed in a traffic collision on one of the
4: country roads, Mm -hmm. a typical third world story, you know.
2: People drive like maniacs, and and he was killed. That's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. I see his daughter from time to time and I always tell her how grateful I was to her father. He and I had a wonderful friendship in many ways. But we disagreed totally about cleaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: No, it's, it's, oh, that's it's not easy, <laughs> easy to be in a partnership. Uh, yeah. Oh no, not at all. Fritz, it took you something like ten years to become profitable at anchor. Did you yes. ever
3: did you ever consider giving up?
2: No. I was crazy.
4: I was insane. I realized later. I just wouldn't.
2: I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't. I was determined. I was just insane. I would not. I was not. I would not give up. I would not. I would. Uh, I just. I just ignored all the problems. And the, when the rain came through the roof down onto the table in the tap room, uh, I just ignored it and pretended that everything was okay. I wore a necktie to work every day uh it, we were in San Francisco, and it was the last really formal city in the west and I wore a necktie to work um, held my head up and pretended that we were successful or going to be successful when uh, I had some very very, very difficult
4: days uh but i would not i just i
2: never I just would not give up. It was insanity. It was I was insane. Or but you could think, you
0: could call it persistence too. That's <laughs>
2: <laughs> and persistence. Yeah, yes, that's right. Insanity combined with other things. Yeah.
0: I'm curious uh, what you thought about Jack McAuliffe. Here was this guy starting a tiny brewery from scratch with very limited resources. Did you
4: think
3: he was crazy?
4: Yes. I went and
2: visited and i could see that indeed uh, he was crazy because he was trying to make beer in the american for the american market in the english style with no cleanliness no sanitation no sterilization no pasteurization and i knew what happened when you tried to make beer that way and i've thought then and I still think that they failed not because of his personality which was pretty gruff uh mind you, he was a charming character but he was gruff but I think that the beer was uh, spoiled and a lot and it was not good it didn't it that techn- that type of brewing doesn't work uh, in um in the american system of bottled or even of draft and uh, I learned that lesson. I had learned that lesson 10 years before he started up. So, And the opposite, of course, was Sierra Nevada. They came for, to us for advice, and they took our advice. They used
4: sanitation and uh, high-quality cleaning and careful microbiological control from the very
2: beginning. And that's how I see it, anyway.
0: I'm going to borrow when, this. Yeah,
2: when the um, nitrosamine scare came and we had the malt from Coors, yeah, it, I took my, I told my staff, now look, Ken Grossman and Jack are going to come and get malt from us, and they're going to pay
4: us what what we pay, and we're going to be polite
2: to them, and we're even going to be polite to Jack McCoff. We're going to pretend that he's a nice guy, and we're going to treat him like a gentleman, and we're going to take his gruff uh, personality and just file it away under, never mind. (laughs) I had to give him a lecture. He was a character. I saw him not too long ago. He's still a character? Do you know him? Uh,
0: no, but I did meet him uh, briefly. I think it was when the Craft Brewers Conference was in San Francisco, and um, you know there were some events at your place as well. Uh, and I, I did get the chance to meet him there, and that was, that was first, that's the first and only time I've ever met him.
2: Well, he was, and you know, if you're a, a pioneer like that. You got to be uh, what's the word? Not eccentric, yeah, eccentric, I guess, but but in a better, more uh, positive way. You, you know, he was a character. Yeah, he had his ideas, he had his way, and he was gruff. Um, um, he was, you know, he was gruff. I had to take my staff aside and give them a lecture on how to, how to be nice to Jack McCall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, there's probably yeah. something wrong with all of us beer entrepreneurs at some point. So. <laughs> yeah, I think
2: there's something, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: Fritz, I'm going to borrow this next question from one of my favorite podcasts. I'm wondering how much of what you accomplished at Anchor was because of your skill and hard work, and how much of it was from luck?
2: Well, I would attribute it to a combination of my determination and my ability to read and learn and research. And the second factor would be Gordon McDermott
4: and Linda Rowe and Mark Carpenter. I had three people with me from the beginning whose attributes made up for my faults. Uh I'm I can think stuff up, but I'm not very
2: good at doing it. I like to tell a story about when I was a boy and I had a what I called my lab in the basement and I used to look at chemistry uh, apparatus catalogs and dream
4: of having a Erlenmeyer flask or a
2: speaker or a graduate and I saved my allowance and I did, There was a laboratory supply company in Des Moines, which is thirty-five miles. I saved my allowance. I got on the Greyhound bus. I went into Des Moines and I bought a uh, condenser, a you know Pyrex condenser with the with the uh, coil inside uh, for you know basically for distillation. I thought that was the most magical thing you could own and have in your lab. I couldn't wait. And on the way home on the bus, I sat on it and broke it. Uh. Yeah. Uh. And that's the lesson of my life. (laughs) Gordon and Linda and Mark made up for the fact that I sit on stuff and, you know, I can dream it up and I can make it historically valid or accurate or whatever, I can have a creative concept about it or way of what, but I can't, I I can't do it. And Gordon was my first full-time employee and he can do anything and he can do it perfectly. And he may be a little slower than you'd like because he's so careful, but He and then Mark and then Linda, all three had that extraordinary ability to do it right and to do it carefully and to do it with enthusiasm and to help me achieve what I wanted to do. And there was certainly some luck. I think the big luck was just the timing of it. You know, it didn't take a genius to realize that American beer all tasted the same. The revolution was bound to come. It was happening in wine uh, already. I, I was into wine at the very same time I was into into beer in the mid '60s, and small wineries were popping up. There was a tiny handful of wineries trying to make great wine. I can count them on the fingers of my two hands, and I don't need all twelve, all, all ten fingers, um, trying to make
4: great wine, but. It was bound to happen in brewing, so I
2: think it I was lucky to be in San Francisco. I was lucky to have stumbled into this funny little medieval joke of a brewery where I could put these ideas, which were I suppose pretty obvious, into practice and I was lucky to have Gordon and look look at and find Linda and Mark, so it was a lot of luck in the basics, but
4: I can't think of any immediately I can't think of any luck in the Brewing in the in the world of brewing was a lot of bad luck <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but we were lucky we were in San Francisco, which was the you know on the west coast, which even today is the is the um, the place where ideas come from to a large extent in food and in, and in high tech and in other things and certainly San Francisco has still a reputation of Food, uh, wine, uh, all that sort of thing. So it was the right place to, to be. Uh, I suppose that was one reason the brewery was still alive. It was local enthusiasm for local food curiosities. But I would say the luck was in the in the broadest sense of the just happening to be here at a time when it was when the the, the, the beer world was bound
4: bound to explode look look at how many breweries there are i mean it was it had to happen don't you think
3: yeah definitely
4: yeah so that was luck that was the big luck do you miss it (laughs) not really no no
2: Uh, you know i had an interesting experience recently i walked from the very top of the brewery down to the to the basement slowly by myself And afterwards, I just had this
4: overwhelming realization that I had created every cubic inch of that brewery. Mind you, I had no end of help
2: from suppliers, but also, of course, from my staff. I mean, Mark and Gordon were, and the rest of the guys, but especially Mark and Gordon, if we decided to put something in they would they would put it in and it might be based on my designs or my primary concepts or whatever but but nonetheless that whole every cubic inch of that brewery was my um
4: baby and it was around that time that i realized that in the mid late 70s
2: Probably, and this is going to sound, I don't want it misunderstood, I don't want it to seem just as I saw it, which was just objectively true. I almost certainly knew more about brewing
4: broadly than anybody in the world.
2: I had to, delivered the beer and I'd written up the receipts and I'd solved the leaking kegs and I'd washed the fish off of the keg valve when they came back, and I had driven the truck, and I had ground the malt, and
4: designed the microbiological uh, testing. and You know, I knew broadly, there were, of course, in any given field, there was somebody who knew vastly more than I did, But I was familiar with the entire gamut. Of brewing from hop growing I'd grown hops of course at home and
2: malting and I don't know what it was but I we'd done it you know we 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 didn't we'd done it we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we you know we read the clerk and we thought that that if the clerk said you should have the pH should go from 5-4 to 5-2 in the kettle. That's just what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> As I traveled around the world, and I realized most of the brewers were just brewing beer. and <laughs> They didn't know what the pH was, and they weren't sterilizing the tanks, and they weren't uh, flash pasteurizing, and they weren't doing anaerobic uh, culturing with the millipore uh, filter testing anyway so uh, it was an amazing amazing realization i don't i really don't think anybody anywhere was more broadly knowledgeable than i was which was a thrilling thing and i miss the sense of sitting in my office and feeling that company around me and the extraordinary people and the attitude that everybody had, we all had a wonderful time. And uh, I miss that, but otherwise, no, I I don't. I'm glad to be out of it. I was ready to be out of it well long before I sold it. I started practicing. Before I sold it, my wife and I would go out to dinner and we'd have a bottle of Anchors team on the table. And she knew, and nobody else really knew, that I was thinking about selling. And I would point to the label and I would say, Now look what they've done to the label. (laughs) You know, the new owners. That's right. I was getting psychologically preparing myself to divorce myself. (laughs) Because I did the labels, you know? That's great. I chose the model. I chose the color of the crown. I chose the the six-pack. I mean, you know, anyway. So we had to get out, and I got out.
0: What advice do you have for the next generation of brewers?
4: Oh, I don't know. I always used to say, tell me about the product. Um,
2: You know, if you, you want to have a great product, you have to put something in the bottle. You have to put something into the brew. And sometimes it's just a concept or an attitude or a special point of view in terms of sourcing your raw materials or buying from people you admire or trust or you with know, all those things, but it's the product, you know, and that's the only thing I would say, and it's easy to forget about the product once you get going. Um, I knew a guy who used to travel around and do consulting, and he said that one of the advantages he had was that the people in the brewers, in the breweries, were so used to their own beer that if a fault developed, you know, what's the... Um,
0: yeah, like DMS or diacetyl or yeah, something Yeah, that's like that, what like. I'm trying to
2: say, dimethyl sulfide. And he said, as I come in fresh and I can detect troubles that they have grown used to as they have slowly become dominant in their beers. So I would say the product, you know, and and you have to put something into the product. You have to put the concept in, and the effort in, and the quality control in, and the follow-up in, and the, all the rest of it, so. I don't have any advice. Just, I would say, you know, have a good time. I, I had a wonderful time.
3: <laughs>
2: wonderful time. We get together every now and then, Linda, Mark, Gordon, and I. We look at each other, and we just laugh we had the world by the tail the world didn't know it yet but we did and it was so much fun i tell you it was magic it was like cutting butter with a warm knife you know the beer industry was ready for a revolution
0: That was father of the American beer revolution, Fritz Maytag, here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for links to some of the articles Fritz mentioned. You've got to read the story of the Whirlpool, written in 1969. It'll blow your mind. Just type story of the Whirlpool into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. It was a thrill for
2: me to be a part of a trade And from the very beginning, to be treated with respect by some of the, by many of the brewers and suppliers that we met. It made a huge impression on me when people treated us like real brewers when we were clearly just a joke. But many people did. And gradually, I realized that the brewing trade really is a. Brotherhood, more than anything I've ever known. And my favorite joke used to be that you go out selling beer all day, desperately trying to knock the other guy out of the bar. You get his handle, get your beer on draft. And then at the end of the day, you meet the guys from the competing breweries and you have a beer. And after a, a beer or two, it's a brotherhood. And then I like to say, oh, what do the shoe guys do at the end of the day?
0: Did you know that Master Brewers now has a mobile app? TQ articles, podcasts, webinars, Ask the Brewmasters, and more, all in the same place. Search Master Brewers in the App Store to download it now.
1: i And then I hit on the floor like the first time when we came to town girl and then there's one thing that i should have said that there may be two things that you should have known